This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of Kick-Ass International Thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And Taylor, we're going to be talking about movies today, but not the kind of movies we've been talking about. We're going to be talking about mental movies and reading comprehension. But before we get to that, listeners who are paying close attention to what's happening during the podcast would have seen a couple of weeks ago or would have heard a couple of weeks ago some glitchiness in the recording. And I'm going to ask my technical expert, Taylor Stevens, what causes that? <laughs> Taylor, what causes that? Okay, we 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 have our theories. Um, you know, of course, we want to make this audio production as quality as possible. And Steve, our wonderful sound engineer has done amazing with the tools that we have, but we just continue to have this problem with glitchiness and words cutting in and out. And it's not consistent, but ultimately what we're pretty sure it boils down to is, well, I don't live in the city. I live in a rural area <laughs> and I am limited to rural level bandwidth. I just do not have a lot of bandwidth coming in or out. And I got to thinking about how that's something that never really crossed my mind until I moved further out of the city is how much we take for granted when we're living in an urban area. And it's easy to forget that half the country, even more than half our country, it does not have access to the same level of utility that our cities do. And by cities, I don't just mean big metropolises, you know, I the smaller cities too. But once you get past a certain distance, you just lose access to so much. So my options for internet are uh I almost it's not dial-up, but like it's uh maybe DSL, like it runs through just a normal phone cable thing, or satellite. That's it. Like I don't have access to any of the high-speed broadband options that I used to have available to me. And the ones that I do have, I still pay as much, if not more for, as I do when I had like a hundred times the speed and bandwidth. And the same thing is true for electricity. Um, I do not have any of the same options that most people have when they, well, at least in Texas, we have a very deregulated market. And so when you live in a city, you have so many options of electricity providers to choose from based on what's going to work best for you and your specific, you know, consumption. I apologize for the dogs. I'm sure you can hear them. Um, <laughs> that's a whole other story in itself, those dogs. <laughs> it's a whole other story about rural life and podcast rural recording. Life, yeah. And and right now it's so hot and they're camped out right beside, right outside my office window, which is one of their cool spots. And the only way for me to get them to move is to go spray down the, the porch with water because they won't, don't want to sit in the water. And that lasts like all of 10 minutes. So <laughs> sorry. But anyway, yes, you know, I do not have electricity choice. Um, things like garbage disposal 
how do you, there's, there's no regular trash pickup. So you have to contract specific, you have to find a company that's re- willing to go where you are and follow whatever rules and pay whatever it is they charge you for it. Um, you know, you've got, you're dealing with septic instead of sewage, uh, you know, like city sewage. And I'm not that far out of the city. I'm, I'm really not that far out of the city. I'm, it's right, right down the road practically, but because it wasn't like that when this house was built 40 years ago and the city has expanded towards where the house was built. I still don't have access to any of the city things, even though quarter mile down the road, all the neighbors do. So that's why I don't know when I'll ever be able to get broadband. And that means we may constantly have these little glitches. It depends, I guess, on the time of day, how much other traffic is on the you know, the same wires, whatever. So that's a little explanation of why sound quality is not always, does not always live up to our intentions. We have, uh, as, a, as I, I think I've mentioned before, we have a, a son, daughter-in-law, and grandchild who lives in uh, outside of Smithville, Texas. And that's pretty rural where they are. Quite and rural, he yeah. gets his internet through, it's not a satellite, but it's some kind of an antenna that's picking up yeah. the signal from something. Yeah, it's and, a direct it's a direct line of sight antenna. Like you have to, yeah, I know exactly what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, with that, it's and with a lot of things other than just like standard internet bandwidth kind of things, um, you get faster download speeds than you get upload speeds. So if you're watching Netflix or something, it works reasonably well, but it's the upload that carries the voice that uh, that right. Taylor and I are doing. That's that's totally dependent on the upload speed. And so when I, when we're at our son's house and I'm working, a lot of what I do involves downloading things and uploading things. And the downloading things happens relatively quickly, but something that might upload in eight seconds here at my desk might take eight minutes at his house. Oh, well, you're still lucky. Or longer. The, last yeah. time, the last time I uploaded a video for Patreon, which... I have not done very often since I moved out here. And that might've been actually the first one that I've done of just me talking and saying what's going on. And the video was, I don't know, maybe it was long, maybe half an hour. It took six hours for it. <laughs> six hours. <laughs> so that's, oh, yeah, it's not, not pleasant. So it's like one of those things you're like, okay, you have to plan your time around it. It's like, I know I'm going to have to upload this video and that's going to tie up kind of my computer for a while it's, if I try and do anything else at the same time it's just going to slow it down even more so I need to plan to do this for a day where I've got something else to do like you know I need to go mow the lawn or something that's going to be a big project I'd coordinate it so that the 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 video gets uploaded while you have something else to do otherwise it's just a freaking nightmare and uh- because of the kind of work I do, I, the, almost all of it is on Zoom meetings. And I think that's the, the way almost everyone's life is right now. Uh, about a third of the people that I talk to are in bandwidth-starved locations where a lot of times it's like, okay, let's turn the video off so that w- I can at least hear what you're saying kind of situation. Right, exactly. And so sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's, it's not very good. And sometimes you just can't do it at all. Yes, we yes. have not had a situation yet where we can't do it at all. I think we had one where it was close to we goes can't down. do it at all. 
or the yeah. electricity goes down. That happens. But yeah, but we we rare. had there was one there was one day where we were like a half an hour just starting and restarting, trying to get a, a clean connection, and we finally got enough to do uh, a quick episode. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if you remember that one, but that was not long after you moved out there. And we have some other strategies for how to record. It just adds a level of complexity that that neither one of us are enthusiastic. Uh, enthusiastic about, about embracing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all, which, all of which to say, this podcast is brought to you with much love and care and attention, <laughs> regardless of how it sounds sometimes. <laughs> all right, uh, Taylor, mental movies and reading comprehension. What's all this about? So that's the best title that I could cobble together from this sort of all over the place uh, topic. But the show today is brought to us courtesy of a um, a comment in the Taylor Stevens Fan Club Facebook group. And it was a unique question that I thought, I was like, this is so good. I love it so much. But it was something that I'd never really um, thought about. And so it was like kind of figuring out as I went. So it happened on... Facebook, social media, right? And right now, these days, the majority of people access social media from their phones, and that can make it difficult to articulate ideas and questions cleanly. You just, you know, you're working with little boxes and fat thumbs or just thumbs, whatever. And so um, this, this question came up, and it was about you know, articulating ideas and, and misunderstandings. And the, the irony is that when the question posted, it took me a few reads to understand what it was asking, like where the confusion was. And so um, in order, if, if I were to read the question exactly as it was written here on the podcast, where you don't even have your eyes, you're just listening with your ears, right? Then it's going to be even more confusing. So I've taken the liberty of, you know, rewording some things for clarity. And I'm just mentioning all of this because I I don't want to put words in other people's mouths, but that's, I have to in this situation. So um, yeah, so now if there's any confusion, that's my fault <laughs> for, for, for trying to sort it out. But here's the question, and it came from Sam in the Facebook group. And it said roughly something along these lines. I recently wrote a post that started, quote, two different women approached me within a three-hour period, dot, 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 dot. Um, so several people who commented on that post made reference to the three women. But that this baffled me because I clearly wrote that there were two women and that it was three-hour period. And I wonder if this mix-up between the number of women and the number of hours is because the post was written with the two for the women spelled out and the three for the hours as a numeral. Perhaps because of this, their brains remembered the numeral three better. So when I answered this question first, it was just off the top of my head. And then I went and I read the post in question to get the full context. And I'm just going to read to you what my answers were about this. I've also slightly edited those <laughs> for the sake of clarity. And then I'm going to discuss some things that didn't show up in that and then go on to talk about what my response was after I had read the entire post in question. So here we go. 
That's an interesting question and one I'd like to think about in terms of finding the most effective way to communicate ideas clearly. Interestingly enough, I had to read this post three times to get what you were saying. And again, I've reworded for clarity, so that doesn't show up anymore. I mean, I understood your point, but it took those three reads to make sense of the two and three, which number belonged to which object and in which ways they were being confused by your readers and Anything I mispronounce in there is because I've never heard these words pronounced in real life. Okay. I'm wondering if, at least in my case, part of this has to do with starting a sentence involving two or more sets of numbers that represent two or more separate objects, people, etc., without first providing context to anchor the reading brain and give it something to attach to the numbers. What I mean is, a lot of people, at least those who read in English, tend to absorb written information in chunks at a time. Obviously, this doesn't apply to everyone, but for those to whom it does apply, words aren't read one at a time. They reach the brain in groupings with meanings and images attached. Often, words are filtered out and only key phrases are pulled in because while all the words are necessary for full grammar and clarity, the brain is capable of getting the gist of the grammar requisite words without paying much attention to them. And that's why typos and missing words can be so stubbornly difficult to spot. It's more like we read in snapshots using the necessary grammar words as directional cues, but focus goes to the parts that are more specific to what's being said. And when a body of text starts right off with sets of numbers, our brains don't have any context or directional cues to give those numbers meaning. So we grab hold of the information and hold it in temporary memory, waiting for the directional cues that guide us to show up. And because numbers are tricky when it comes to comprehension, when those numbers are sitting in working memory, waiting to be called upon, it can be easy to confuse which number belongs to which thing. But I do also suspect that having one number written as a numeral and the other spelled out probably exacerbates that. Those are my thoughts straight off top, sort of a gut sense of it, and could be totally completely wrong. I'm going to look for your post now and see if reading the whole thing points to something else. And I did read the whole thing and I came back with more. But before we go there, I want to expound a little bit on the whole numbers are tricky thing. I suspect that there is an entire body of neurological or social science research that has already approached this with real data, 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 and, you know, like real science. And I have no idea what it is or what it says and no idea if what I'm about to say is even in the same ballpark. So I'm approaching this intuitively from the perspective, only this perspective of what I do know and understand, which is that of presenting words in the most effective way possible to allow the reading brain to make in uninterrupted mental movies. And in this context, just very specifically this context, those clear mental movies that we strive for in writing fiction, that's the equivalent of reading comprehension for the sake of this discussion. So the way I see it, it is the author's job, whether you are writing a book or whether you're writing a post. The person who's doing the writing it is your job to make it as easy for your audience, your readers, your friends, whatever, to understand what it is that you're saying. And also to make it as difficult as possible for that same array of people to come away from confused by what you said. And as an author or post writer or whatever, the only tools you have in your toolbox to accomplish those goals are the words that you choose and the order in which you choose to present them. So with all of that in mind, 
Numbers are tricky because numbers, regardless of whether they're spelled out or in numeral form, represent very specific absolutes. And most nouns and adjectives, words that add descriptions to nouns, they're not like this. So if I was to describe, for example, a woman as tall, blonde, and with a body that men struggled to avert their eyes from when she walked by, unless you have aphantasia, which is a phenomenon in which the mind is unable to create its own mental images, mind blindness, if you will, Unless you've got something like that going on, your brain will automatically find a way to convert those details that I just described into something that it can see. So like the mental movie thing, right? But what your brain sees when it hears tall, blonde, and with a body men struggled to avert their eyes from when she walked by, that's an invention entirely of its own making, what you see. It's your picture that's created by your own individual definition of what tall is, what blonde looks like, and your perception of what an eye-catching, hard-to-look-away-from female figure would look like. And what you see in your mind might have very little resemblance to what the next person over sees in their mind based on their individual definitions of those same details. But numbers are different because numbers are absolute. They're exact. And so let's say, for example, numbers one through 10, right? They each represent the exact same quantity to every person who's reached kindergarten level math. And because numbers are absolute, you can't just make up a picture to go with them. Like you don't have any, your reading brain doesn't have any flexibility in crafting its own interpretation of what the number three means. Three is three. I mean, like, in fact, the reading brain can't do anything with numbers until it has the context to go with them, unless maybe if you or that particular brain has hyperphantasia, which is the exact opposite of aphantasia. And that's when the mind produces just extremely vivid mental imagery for everything, then maybe sure, you might have a brain that has an image that goes with number three, but most people don't. Or maybe you're synesthetic, which is somebody who has their senses get crossed. And so they can taste colors or feel numbers or whatever. So, okay, fine. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about just, you know, your average person. There is no image that goes with the number three in the context of whatever's being told you. So when we hit numbers, those numbers have to sit in that temporary memory, just waiting to be picked up by the context so they can get put where they belong in this mental movie slash reading comprehension thing that's going on. And when you're dealing with multiple numbers for multiple types of objects, it can create room for confusion, even if you're providing the context. And so that's sort of where my brain is going. But also, as I was putting these notes together, I had another thought that jumped off of that. And so I want to take you into a small side note about imagination itself, like the mind, the mind visualization process, right? So we've already established that the mind's ability to generate its own images, it varies from person to person. 
And I think maybe the easiest way to think of this is not A or B, like you don't you don't have aphantasia or a neurotypical brain or hyperphantasia, and it's just one of those three very firm things. It's more like a continuum where like with a bell curve distribution in between. And what that means is that while most of us are going to reasonably have an imagination experience somewhat close to center, somewhat similar to the majority of people who are in that, you know, one one standard deviation of the center line of the mode of the bell curve or whatever, you know, I don't do math. So all you mathematicians out there, don't judge. You sounded anyway, like yeah. a total statistical geek there for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm probably even using it all wrong and everything. But but what that means is that even though most of us are going to be somewhat similar, you know, give or take to each other and how we experience our mental movies, there's still going to be a really large number of people who are creeping toward the end of either end of the spectrum without actually hitting that medical diagnosis of, you know, aphantasia or hyperphantasia or whatever. And where that matters to this entire conversation is I strongly suspect, and I have no hard data, no evidence, nothing to back this up, but until there's some science that says otherwise, I'm just going to run with it. And that is that where you, you yourself sit on this spectrum, it's going to influence how you write and what your particular struggles with written communication will be. So my, my hypothesis is that if you're on the aphantasia side of the spectrum, you're going to struggle with scene setting. You're going to struggle with disembodied voices, character teleportation issues, and difficulty anchoring both your characters and your readers in time, place, and space, because you just don't have the mental images in your head for those things. And so how do you create them? How do you even know that they're missing? Because they're not missing in your brain because you didn't know that they were ever in anybody else's brain, right? And if you have, if you're on like the hyperphantasia side of the spectrum, you're going to struggle with flow, which is stuff that's in your head that doesn't seem to make it to the page, but you can't see where it's missing. You're going to struggle with over description and wandering details that yank you off in directions you hadn't planned to go because you see so much inside your head and you're trying to convey that in a way that someone else can see it too, even though that's not technically how it works. And we've covered that in other places. There's, I'm sure there's so much more to this, but I haven't really had time to think it through. And I just, I don't know, this is all off the top of my head, but my point in talking about this isn't to find new ways to pigeonhole the process or label people, you're this, so here's what your struggle is going to be, blah, blah, blah. No, it is to create sort of a conscious awareness that this is a thing so that you can figure out where your own individualized struggles might be coming from. Like maybe it's a struggle, not because of you, but because your brain is not working the way that you think it's supposed to, even though your brain is perfect the way that it is. So if you know where you are, if you can figure out where you are on the spectrum, you're going to adapt your process to account for it. Maybe take some of that weight, that negative feeling about yourself or your writing off because you're like, oh, well, I'm not a bad writer. I just struggle with these specific issues because of how my brain processes information. Now I'm going to compensate for that. And here's where I'm going to try to do that. So I can give myself as an example, right? I 
pretty convinced that I'm on the aphantasia side of the spectrum. So like I can generate images in my mind. I do not have aphantasia. And when somebody starts describing something to me of something that happened to them or whatever, or if, if a book has description, I can sort of get that in my brain. It's not like a blank, like it is with true aphantasia. But the images that I do have, they're usually pretty vague and cloudy. And they're more like shadows, really. So when I'm working through a rough draft, they're just really one empty scene and teleportation issue after the next. Like I have to really work hard to create the details that bring those scenes to life. And it's pretty rare for me to be able to do that off of imagination alone. And mostly, I personally compensate for that lack of vivid mental life or whatever by seeking out real life stuff that I can look at. And, and I use that picture as a way and I adapt it and, and turn it into something else. But at least I have this like basis for it, this starting point. And like, if I'm writing about a place that I've never been, I have to at least see something similar to even know how to begin describing it. And so I'll do that with real life scenes or I'll rely on completely unrelated memories, like some place that I've been, some building that I've seen, and I'll use that as the building block to create these new images for things that I need to describe. I do not have the ability in my own brain to craft those out of whole cloth. If I do, if I'm forced to craft it out of whole cloth, it takes real focus and um, sort of like painting, like layering stuff in and trying to figure out where things would sit. It does not come naturally to me. And um, in that same vein, you know, I've talked before in the past about how I've never seen the faces of my characters. I know Logan's eyes are green because I said that they were green, but I've never seen his eyes as part of his entire face. And I know the way that Bradford looks from a distant sort of his bill based off his height and his bulk, but I've never seen him in full living color. And I also have no idea what Monroe looks like because I've never seen her face either. And so for me, coming from that direction, it's really not difficult to avoid over description because there is nothing in my head that needs to be a bit held back or whittled down in the first place. But I do feel the characters. So like I experience the characters as if I'm inhabiting their bodies and seeing things through their eyes. So anything I've seen of Bradford or Logan has been through Monroe's point of view. And anything I've seen of Monroe has been through Bradford's and Logan's eyes. And those experiences that I have with the characters, they're more emotional than visual. Like I feel what they're feeling. I don't necessarily see clearly what they're seeing. And when I do, it's like, if you're looking from the very, very far corner of your eye where you can see where the body is, but not exactly what it looks like, that's what my inner mind world is. It's, it's very shadowy and not clear at all. And so because of all of this, the majority of the description that does show up on the page is either based on something I've seen in real life or in photos or videos, or it's adapted from something into something new. Um, or I've drawn off my own life experience. And thankfully, thankfully, the first two books that I wrote, they were filled with stuff that I had seen and experienced in real life. So that's why I was able to 
create them, but that bought me time to figure out how to sort of replicate the same thing from an imagination that is barely there. And it's probably also why I am really good at writing scenes that don't focus on this body part went there and this body part went there or whatever, but they focus more on the characters in our world for generating connection and emotion and la 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 la. And it's why I probably find it so easy to write description only as it directly relates to where the characters are or what they're saying, because I do not have the mind sight. So I'm forced to rely on other senses besides sight to create that same material. And, and so I suspect that if you lean more towards the hyperfantasia side of things, your experience is going to be exactly the opposite. And I suspect that your imagination is going to generate so much visual material that you're going to struggle to balance that with everything else that goes into crafting a scene that feels real and alive and keep the action moving. And it's going to be more of a challenge to you to pare down the description to keep the action moving. And it's possible, like, and I, again, I have no idea. I'm just ripping this off the top of my head that based on how an author, writer, whatever's um, inner mind, imagination world works, they might be drawn to write one type of story over another. For example, maybe if someone has hyperfantasia or leans more in that direction, they're going to be drawn to write stories that are very um, visually compelling with a lot of world building and new ways of thinking about things, heavy on descriptive detail. Whereas someone like myself, who leans more towards the aphantasia side of it, I'm more inclined to write stories that rely on movement and action instead of description because I, I can conceptualize movement and action far better than I can conjure something out of nothing in terms of places and things. And I don't talk about the clothes that people are wearing unless it's critical to that scene, not because I have this like insight into what details are important, but because I'm not seeing in my head, I don't care what they're wearing. I just care about what they're doing. Right. And, and that's because of how my brain works. And if your brain works differently, you're going to struggle in those areas. And I'm going to struggle in the areas that come easier to you. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It does. There's nothing wrong with how your brain works. The goal here in talking about this is just to find ways to figure out what your natural strengths are and emphasize them and to maybe stop feeling so bad about the stuff that you're struggling with because your, your own brain is working against you in that. That's okay. You just got to find ways to, you know, work with it, accommodate it. And so taking this one step further, I'm also going to throw out the hypothesis, I guess, that if this is the foundation of what we're looking at, then the same is going to apply to readers. And readers, based on where they fall on this continuum, they're going to maybe more readily connect to authors who write in ways that their own inner minds can connect to. So those who lean towards aphantasia will probably get really annoyed with lots of description because they don't have that mind's eye ability to do anything with all those words. It's just blah, 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 wasting time. Let's get past it and get on with the story. But 
it's possible that those who lean towards hyperfantasia, they're going to find that same material like immersive and rewarding and rich because they have the mind's eye that's able to take in those details and recreate them in almost like a tactile sense. Again, this is all just theory and and guesswork, and it could be completely wrong, but it makes sense to me. <laughs> so I'm sticking with it until somebody's like, here's some papers from the science people who know what they're talking about, and you are wrong. Okay. All right. All I'm right. gonna throw in, I'm gonna throw in one more example. Right. And that's I mean, you used it at the end the two extreme examples of the really sparse de- description and the more elaborate description. I was thinking of an example that I'd I'd read in a book over the weekend where someone described a woman using a very sparse description, sort of like you did in the beginning, you know, uh, the the sort of thing where it was like a form that you would, you would, you have to fight to stare at or something. Yes. Yeah. So in my mind, that's a certain thing. And, and then like five paragraphs later, the author went into detail that was oh. not in my description at all. So I think yeah. that's that's the danger of combining the two. And the, the same thing could be in a scene setting where, you know, if it if it's a if it's a dark bar, a dark, dingy bar, and then all of a sudden you've got this this image, and then you're describing something else in elaborate detail in the dark dingy bar five paragraphs later, it eliminates whatever the reader had in his mind from the initial sparse description, which allows the story to move on. <laughs> and then you're but going then in it, and taking the reader out of the story to give yes. this last little bit of information. Right. Totally 100%. So here's a side note to the side note. And we've actually, what you brought up, we've talked about that elsewhere on other episodes. But I want to recap here that when you introduce a character, you give all the details you're going to give then and there. You don't describe them a little bit, and then much later go into an elaboration of what those details are, specifically for the reasons that Steve just brought up. So you have an either-or situation here. You can describe your character as, you know, tall, blonde, and whatever with the figure, or you can spell out how she looks, but you don't get to do both. Uh, Otherwise, you run into exactly that same scenario, and you want to always present Whatever details that a reader is going to be using to build that visual of the character up front so that the the reader's own images don't begin to generate and then you come back and ruin everything and just going to yank them right out of the reading experience. So that's a really good refresher and also exactly connected to this subject. So moving on from there back to the actual conversation that was going on on Facebook. I did find the original post and I read it and I had more thoughts. But before we get into them, I want to read to you how this post starts. It goes, two different women asked me about subject X within a three-hour period. Now, as was explained in the original post, there was more than one reply to this post that conflated the numbers so that the people who were replying were switching it to where they were talking about three women. But here it is again, two different women asked me about subject X within a three-hour period. And like Sam, who posted this, said, he 
he was very, he very clearly said two different women and a three hour period. So where does this whole three women misunderstanding come from? And here's what I wrote after reading the troubled, troubled post in question in, in its entirety. So in this particular instance, I think we can mostly chalk up the numbers to things conflation slash reversal to people on the internet being people on the internet where most chats, posts, comments, reading, it's just skim reading. And you're lucky if you even get that much tension before the fingers start flying. But if I had to go all literal here and try to look at it from the perspective of reading psychology, there are things that I would personally change in that opening sentence for the sake of focusing attention in an attempt to force the skim reading brain to (laughs) hopefully pay closer attention to the details. And those things would be one. Start the sentence with a time frame. For example, two different women would become today two different women. And this is a really small, stupid thing that hardly seems like it would make any difference. But what adding the time frame does is it's avoids it avoids starting the sentence, actually the entire post, with a number. And starting with a number is an invitation to skip details. We just don't conceptualize numbers well at all without context, which I've already expanded upon earlier. In this particular sentence, there's no real way to reword it to avoid starting with a number, which is why I suggest adding a word before the number. By starting with today, you're telling the brain, hey, pay attention. There's some information coming and you are providing a non-number anchor to place into working memory while the brain is waiting for its context. The second thing I would do would be to add the word same as a modifier to the number three. So within a three hour period would become within the same three hour period. And the reasoning behind this is the same as the reasoning behind the first example. These added words provide absolutely nothing in terms of necessary context. But in both cases, they're forcing the brain to focus more closely on what's being said. They are essentially separating out the issue of numbers and making it separate from the actual topic being discussed. And I think, I don't really know why, but I think this is because in both cases, the brain treats these added words as specific and necessary for context instead of skippable detail. And when you combine together those those two different things, here's what the difference is going to look like. First example, um, the the original, two different women ask me about subject X within a three-hour period versus today, two different women ask me about subject X within the same three-hour period. So the the comment on Facebook continues, but I want to pause for a second to talk about these differences of what those two words mean, because I don't have the proper language or understanding to explain why adding just those two words in those particular locations works to refocus attention and point it to where you need it to go. I don't know why it forces the brain to order the details correctly and hold them the right ones in memory. I just know that it does. I don't speak the language of grammar. I'm completely lost when it comes to speaking about how grammar works. 
So I don't even have a way to express it that way either. But in my own wording, my poor wording that has nothing to do with true grammar terminology and nothing to do with real science either, I guess, I, I think this works because those two words in those specific places change the subject of the sentence, not in a grammar sense, in a focus sense. So in the first, we're asked to focus on two nameless faces of people that we know nothing about for a time period that is meaningless to us, the reader, until we're given more context for why it would be meaningful. But in the second version, by adding those two words, we're basically being told, this is a story about something I experienced regarding two nameless faces people that you don't need to know anything about for this to make sense. And the three-hour period matters now because I emphasize that it happened within the same three-hour period, not just a a random three-hour period. So in the first, which reads, two different women ask me about subject X within a three-hour period, there's really no direct connection between those two nameless, faceless people and the time period in question. And honestly, based on the entire post, which I'm not going to go into here because it's it was a private post and I don't have permission for it, but I can say that the specific time period wasn't really relevant, except to say that it happened twice in that same period of time. But by adding the word same, that same period of time before the time period, you're basically saying this time period matters to me and it is directly connected to the point I'm making. And it ties those two separate disconnected number plus detail things together in a, a sort of mental ordering of facts that just didn't exist in the original opening line. Anyway, back to my continued response. It's easy to look at this type of scenario in retrospect, to try to deduce what happened and fix it after the fact. But these changes are so small that I doubt anyone, not even me, would be conscious enough at the time of writing them to realize that they might be potential points of misunderstanding or detail, you know, conflation of detail, except for starting a sentence with a number. It's not always possible to avoid this without twisting yourself and you're writing into a pretzel and there's no point in being ridiculous about it. But as a general rule, try to avoid starting sentences with numbers and that's your craft hack for the day. And also, thank you so much for this very specific question with this very specific example. I love it. <laughs> and All right. That's- and- that, as Taylor was saying, is this week's episode. So thank you uh, very much for being with us. We will be back with you again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. Love questions. Give me questions. And we can have more very random, rambling discussions, unscientific-based, but possibly true nonetheless, about writing. So yes, send the questions. And thank you for being here. And we will see you next week.